0: This is the Saddler's Post, conversations on horses, leather trade and the art of saddlery with our host, Christian Lowe.
1: My guest today on the Saddler's Post is traditional leather worker Hamish Blandley. Hamish began teaching himself leatherwork while bedbound for several years. It provided a way to focus his mind and connect him to his passion for Pictish culture. Hamish, welcome to the Saddler's Post podcast. Thanks, Good to be here. Hi. Yeah, so the premise of the podcast is to explore and, and celebrate leatherwork and the people who are passionate about it. And while researching, um, I came across your site. And then as I start digging deeper, um, you know, I, I read your kind of about you and, you know, see that um, you had started this uh, during what sounded like a, a troubling time for you. So why why did you turn to leatherwork in particular? Like this is an area I really want to explore.
0: Aye, absolutely. It's it's always been a bit of a funny one, I guess. It's I think when I was having my kind of operations and, and troubles being bedbound, I was sort of between the ages of seventeen and nineteen, so it was that like quite young, captivated age, anyway. And being someone who was fascinated by history and fantasy and all things like that. Leather just, it it comes into stories so often uh, with its kind of tactile nature and I was often um, also quite an avid outdoorsman so I was really into my bushcraft and things so when I was kind of having uh, my my troubles and not able to kind of move around it was that, like wanting something to latch onto to kind of put my focus into I'd always like had a a bit of a go at other crafts. I'd I'd made some jewellery out of antler and bone and various stones and things, but I was kind of looking at something I could get my hands onto that didn't require any power tools for a start. Um, anything that I had to do, I had to be able to do whilst lying in bed, so that was a big part of it. And then just looking around being stuck in my bed at items that I had in my room, sort of knives that had no sheets and things that needed a pouch for or a case for. Um, and I thought, well, rather than try to buy all these things, it's something I could probably have a go at last lying in bed. Um, so that's what kind of got me this like ten thread to just start pulling and pulling and pulling on.
1: Yeah, it's amazing because as again as I'm looking at um, you know you as a as a person and an individual um, and why I wanted to share share with everyone what you're doing because it you've woven it into everything so the the background in um or interest in in Pictish culture which um maybe you want to spend a second just talking about that so that people kind of have an idea of what what it is because I didn't know I didn't know um you know why your company was called what it's called I didn't have any background in that so for a typical North American uh just give us a bit about that and then you know talk just about you know how you've managed to fabric you know weave that into the fabric of your everyday life
0: absolutely so um my business called pictavia uh pictavia is an ancient word for picked land which is um part of scotland so this is um around the time um that the kind of romans are, are in the uk and the the picts for the the indigenous culture of scotland they predate scots um and they were kind of Amalgamated and formed during around the fourth century AD um, and through Roman uh, oppression, kind of uh, formed a stronger and stronger culture um, and continued right through the early medieval period, what a lot of people would kind of recognize as the Viking Age. Um, And then you get the Scots in the west of Scotland, uh, Picts are more in the east and north, and they eventually amalgamated and through one reason or another they kind of molded into the Scots of what we know now. So, my Historical focus is on Pictish history, because I'm from the uh, Aberdeenshire, the northeast of Scotland, so I grew up surrounded by carved Pictish stones and Pictish place names, so that's woven deep into my culture. Um, so it's been a big inspiration all my life, and I kind of started pulling at these threads, picking up leather working, but with my historical background, I wanted to go down the historical route and... Like many people, I started looking into uh, a lot of Viking-Nordic cultures first because they're very interesting, and that led me to look back on my own culture and start to explore Pictish culture and how it also interacts with all the contemporary cultures of the time period. So that kind of really just got me fired up and going into museums and looking at artifacts and trying to recreate them and celebrating Pictish and Scottish history in and, and the best way that I can, and I think it feeds me just as much as the actual crafting of leatherwork is. The craft is beautiful, but the history behind the craft is equally just as beautiful. So I, I think when I twin the two together, it gives me a more intense focus in what I'm doing and it gives me more context around what I'm actually making and who I'm making it for and the craftsmen that I've gone before to kind of teach us all these lessons as well. So that's my kind of uh, driving force that I've developed over the years.
1: Nice. That is exactly the kind of passion i'm interested in because it's uh you know leather work or modern leather goods in a production kind of way um you know i'm glad to see leather is still being used but it's it's very much considered to be uh a fashion and high-end type of thing and mm-hmm. really when we go back to the beginning like you you'll you'll be able to educate me on this is that you know, the tanning of a hide and the use of it in everything from uh, building uh, boats, that which I learned from your site, I, I hadn't even thought about using skins for that, to clothing, to, um, you know, building everything for your life um, in that time. Leather wouldn't be considered some kind of luxury item. It's a useful useful thing right
0: absolutely i mean i certainly know in in scotland up until 40 years ago there was a tannery in every village that's gone now mostly because of the war and things but historically it'd be the same tanning was it was very available um hunting was wide scale the um the trading and production of skins was very wide scale so yeah it was it was absolutely available and it was, a, it was a masterful art, as, as any trade at its time. And what I've noticed over the years is more and more people were, were expecting me to be a tanner. And I've always said, well, you can be a leather worker or a tanner. It's very hard to do both. And I think I never really became a good leather worker until I started working with a tanner. And then I started tanning myself as well. Um, I think really understanding the material and where it comes from and how to produce it. Definitely makes uh, better crafts, and it's just got me deeper and deeper into that history and exploring what I can do with leather. As you say, building, building boats and shoes and flasks and on all sorts of like everyday items to more niche items that it can all be done with leather. And it is just that true, going back to the core and the history and understanding the materials, yeah. um, which really just gets us that, that much deeper into it. And I think <clears throat>
1: I might be wrong because of my background in the saddlery trade, but. We you know, my mind just goes to, oh, uh cow, like cow skins, uh hides, but in that in in Pictish culture, surely it would have been everything from you know anything living. you wouldn't have wasted one ounce of an animal that you would have killed for food, so rabbit, um anything is is do you work in all skins like
0: yeah, so I I will work in in old skins and what what I found when I started going down historical leather working is you, you tend to go through it, through uh, kind of reenactment and living history and most of the leather work that we have in reenactment it's it's modern cowhide um, which is straight off the bat it's tanned with the, the wrong barks and we historically have in the west and it's produced very thick and it's very stable. Um, when you look at uh, historical items, there tend to be much thinner, softer leathers, much finer work. Things that, like every day that we take for granted like belts, we have nice thick cowhide that we'll make a thick belt out of. Historically, through Pictish period, Viking age, we see it's actually very thin leathers like deer skin and goatskin that's rolled and stitched into tubes to give it the strength. So as we go more historically into the tanning, we're using a lot more finer materials and we're creating softer leathers and Really the, the artistry was in producing those fine soft leathers and how to put the, the man hours into producing something beautiful with it. And we tend to see with cow historically that when the churches were set up in, in the British Isles, it tends to be through the through the churches that the cowhides going because they're using all the calf skin to produce thellum. So that's where most of that went. So you're more everyday crafts and um, just typically deer, sheep and goat skin. And one thing that we're always missing out of this culture is fish skin. We see it a lot in northern uh, traditional cultures, like Inuit and northern Scandinavia. But so it's something we don't have the evidence quite for here. But I'm convinced that people would have been using fish skin because it's the easiest to obtain, the fastest to tan, and it's beautiful and incredibly strong.
1: Yeah, I had never even thought about that. And this is what fascinates with with um with how you're doing things is that you're um, honing your your craft, but at the same time it's it's woven into um, historical, you know, <laughs> it's almost like you're, you know, we always talk about going down a rabbit hole in, um, in our thoughts of, you know, we go off on these tangents and it almost seems like you're, purpose you you what you are is going off on that tangent so how did this bag um evolve and and um i think one of your one of your talks on your youtube page or or possibly um i think it was a tutorial on making a bag um that you you couldn't really talk about the assembly of the bag without talking about tools and iron um and you know, so you you kind of are really going things under a microscope and thinking about if this was period correct, what tools would they have had, what would they have used?
0: Yeah, and it's 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 really important to point out that the leather worker doesn't stand alone. He he couldn't. The leather worker needed a tanner, he needed someone keeping bees for his beeswax, he needed a blacksmith to make his tools. And this is the kind of like threads that I'm kind of following and trying to we create this community of, of craftsmen. These were all produced by communities. The weather worker was just one small part of it. So as I research, yeah, my my uh, my kind of iconic cranic bag, looking at the, the how the cuts were made in the bag and the tool that was produced and the iron worker and where the iron was actually coming from. So we go up and harvest bog ore from the hills above there where it would have come from and try and create that whole process through. Um, and it's quite staggering when you look at the entire process that everything had to go through just so that hide could go into the leatherworker's hands to produce something. Um, I get a real kick out of just following those and yeah. seeing how we still uh, kind of interact with it in, in modern day craft as well.
1: To me, it, it stands out um, the sup- when people talk about community, like a modern day community. I don't think we will ever replicate that because we we don't um we don't rely on each other like you say like you you couldn't you know uh, to hang your shingle out back however many hundreds of years ago or or plus to say yes I'm a leather worker you couldn't you couldn't produce a set of harness without buckles or a bit for you know you couldn't you couldn't do what you do as say without the the tannery and everything but now kind of in modern times we're just you know emailing or or ordering online things and we're not even know of its origin like I never you know if something tells me, if someone tells me it's calfskin I don't actually ask where it's from or how it was tanned or um, you know you just take it for granted you're buying an end product, right? Whereas, you know, it seems to me that your whole point is really, um, bringing that sense of community and like, it would have been an incredible interwoven society back
0: then. Absolutely. But I I do think we're very fortunate in that we have expanded to that online community and that not only can we get anything at our fingertips that is, um, you know, economic, affordable, like that. that's a big bonus. But we can really also seek out those craftsmen that we want to work with. So there's a huge benefit to that. But this happened in historical times as well. Craftsmen were often travelling craftsmen. They would have a patron in their home area and they would travel to another patron. We have evidence of um, Pictish silversmiths going to work in Ireland and producing work that had um, artistry of Pictish and Irish origin and then taking them back to Pictland and So we we, we do have evidence of Draftsmen kind of traveling around and and picking up inspiration. But, I mean, a lot of the times they they would have had to because even in in such a small community, when you rely on each other, you kind of lose one member of that community and your chain can break down very easily. Whereas in modern times, we're very fortunate in that we can always find a way to keep that chain running. So we are quite blessed in that um, today.
1: Yeah, and I think probably, you know, historically too that's where you you were people didn't spend a lot of time thinking about what you're passionate about if your father was a leather worker you would have just apprenticed with him and became one as well to keep that chain going um and i would imagine that as 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 the senior leather worker would have say traveled to to other lands uh, to to do trade that you'd be left behind to carry on the business that was built. Um, that just seems uh, like common sense, I guess, that you're just building that um, business in, in the family, right?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, and it would have been a fabric of the society as well. Um, we, we have kind of, um, we, when we look at historical... Kind of aspects you'd, you'd have your patron your 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 layered or whoever would suddenly need a lot of new equipment made and it would be handed out to those craftsmen of his patron so it seems quite idyllic having your community at your fingertips in the cycle of craft but what very well could have also happened is you suddenly have someone who owns your life saying we need all this equipment within a month it has to get done so you'd see this uh, this kind of society of constantly needing apprentices and keeping it building and trying to grow whilst producing everything on, yeah. on a timescale as well. So I think that pressure we still kind of have as well, um, which is kind of nice to, to feel in some aspects. But um, our lives don't really hang in the balance the same way it used to do with our craft.
1: It's true. Now, but that brings me to <laughs> kind of, you know, this this what I'm trying to weave through every podcast is, your mental health let's say you know you're you're bedbound you yeah. you know there's a there's a need you have to keep your mind busy you have to keep your you know self focused on accomplishing something so building a a sheath for instance um you know is a wonderful you know hey i started with some raw materials i designed it to fit a specific thing um, I, you know, maybe just even breaking it down further that, you know, you can clearly see online that some people are obsessed with burnis- burnishing edges of leather, <laughs> like this is their whole yeah. reason for being, which uh, um, it's pretty to look at, but you can tell, you can sense the pride. So, you know, for, for me, I would love to hear from you, you know, what it, the sense of peace or accomplishment or... You know what I'm trying to share with a broader community is that you know leathercraft is um, you know it can be very uh, malleable in your quest for some happiness in your life and some 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 serenity and some peace. You know it doesn't have to be just building something to sell it.
0: Absolutely. So when I when I first discovered this was was when I was kind of bedbound bound and. Being 17, 18, 19, that's, that's when you've got your most vitality. And that's that point in my life is when I had that vitality kind of stripped away. So that was certainly, you know, one of the lowest points in my life. And, and needing that focus, that, that sharpness. So I got into the leatherwork, and uh, it's purest form. It's, it's creation. So it, it gives you that, like you're able to really put yourself into something. Um, and you can focus all your energies into just creating something beautiful. So that has its own kind of uh, kind of beauty to it. But then for me comes the, the kind of problem-solving aspect, that essence of a craftsman um, trying to work things out, trying to do it historical, or just trying to create something new straight out of your mind. And when you're at these really low points, but you're still able to produce something, to be able to turn nothing into something, it completely flips your world upside down and, and what you're able to kind of bring into the world rather than just focusing on, on what's keeping me down and so i kind of just kept this going and kept this going and eventually i i did recover and i did kind of get my life back and i not tried to step away from leatherwork, but i i followed what i'd gone and got a degree in and i was doing forestry work and i just found it wasn't fulfilling my life at all so i just put my energy back into leatherwork, and without having that low already bringing me down that i was trying to address with it that's when i really just started kind of running with it because it was just—it was just a constant high, really. Just when every day is about problem solving and creation and what you can achieve, and you have something tangible at the end of the day. Most days, yes. <laughs> so, you know, all other workers. Well, no. Some days you don't have anything tangible. Yeah. Um, yeah. Right. But I think when you do, and you can really look at your your hard earned efforts and kind of show it to the world and show a little bit of yourself. I think that is mentally so rewarding.
1: Yeah, I couldn't agree more. That's a you know a I was getting very excited as you were talking there just because, uh, you know, one of the things that, you know, when I'm asked, you know, what do you, what's, what do you like about it so much is I don't necessarily talk about the, the leather work, but the high you get. Um, I do a, a lot, a lot of saddle repairs, and it's the same when someone maybe does um, restoration work or I would suppose even an automotive mechanic. You know, if something came to me broken, I fixed it and a few hours later it's heading out the door um with someone that's that's happy and has their beloved article back but you know it it is that you know um short like every day you get a sense of satisfaction because even if you didn't say you know do one project from beginning to end you can you can look back on your day and you know exactly what you accomplished um you can see it you can see a flat hide starting to become a two a three-dimensional item right like you've even if all you've done is you know cut straps and laid out your plan like even the the planning of something designing something or even if your patterns are set the fact that you laid it all out and cut all your bits out and you, you know, you go to bed going tomorrow. Yeah. It's just assembly work. And, uh, that sense of, I don't know. It's, it's peace that comes from, from it. And, um, it's, uh, it's highly, highly rewarding, which I think is, is stimulating for your, for your happiness. Right.
0: I think that uh, it, it is an inner peace and it doesn't come from anybody else. It's, it's you know it's nice to get feedback and a bit of affirmation on what you're making but really it's it's inner peace that just comes from putting yourself into something um that's that's what i really love and you get that daily uh you know having something to show for it but you get it long term as well as a as a leather worker whether you do it as a business or a hobby you'll look back over the years and, and realize where you've come your accomplishments and then you you slowly start to Realize that you've built up a reputation as well, and that's the long-term effects of it. You have um, respect as a craftsman, and I think that has that that longer-term goal as well.
1: Absolutely, yeah. You know, when when the phone rings or you get an email, and someone, you know, your reputation your reputation had preceded you in something, and you're, you know, someone's reaching out because they know you specialize in something. It, it's it's that again that feeling of, you know, um, it's a, it's a bonus, you know, cause you're, y- you know, you do work hard and try to accomplish things in your business. Um, and when you get recognized for it, it feels good. So are you doing this full time? This is your business. Um, you know, yeah. it's not a, you know, I'm, I just love the idea that people you know, hey, no, you know, I do my time at the office, and then this is what I do as my stress release or whatever. Or no, I did turn it into a career.
0: So I've I've, I've been leather working about twelve years um, now, and as I said, I, I tried to go into forestry and, and do that, and I couldn't really find it that fulfilling. So I, I went full time as soon as I could with leather working. So I've been I've been doing this full time, running my business for six or seven years now. But it's uh it's it's developed into other things as well. Because of the historical aspect I I do T V work as a historical consultant or I get interviewed as well kind of pictish expert or the or a, a kind of craft consultant. Um I'm a tattoo artist as well on the side. Um and then the kind of coracle building and running the courses and various other experiences I run. But I will still always define myself as a leather worker. I think to the core, um, that's the main thing that I've I've discovered. I kind of um realize defines me as as a craftsman as, as a problem solver and a craftsman and yeah. whether i think anybody does it full-time or not i think to the core of you if you're if you're a craftsman you, you've got that that label
1: yeah i agree and um you stay strictly within the historical work
0: i do modern stuff as well i uh, i'll take jobs on if i find them interesting um and, and sometimes it is kind of um it is freeing to not be within historical confines and to be able to just create something modern or, or, or new. But my focus, being the historical, is, is nice because I find it, it gives you more deadlines and it gives you more rules. And um, a lot of people look at historical craft as quite rustic, but the more you look at things in museums, the more you, you find in, in crazy, just, just intricate detail that's very, very hard to follow. Certainly with modern materials that's why you have to go to making your own tools and your own leathers so I, I love that the most but sometimes if people bring a, a modern piece to me I'm, I'm more than happy to make it yeah. as well
1: yeah and just this is my own little bias coming in 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 Pictish culture did, did horses play any role in developing that society or like through farming or transportation or harness requirements
0: Yes, absolutely. So we what what we have left of the picks the most is stone carvings. We've got hundreds of hundreds of stone carvings all across Pickland and a lot of them depict horses, and it all seems to be um, kind of royalty. Um, so, but definitely warfare with a lot of horses, and we do find um, the remnants of pieces of, of mounts. We don't have much archaeological data from them, but we do find um, kind of horse tack and things. Yeah.
1: And uh, like a. They would have been ridden. I know there's at some point, you know, like Romans, for instance, are are just forever associated with with the uh, chariot, right? Um, not necessarily doing warfare mounted. Um, but I imagine as Romans came to um, uh, invade, you know a a smart opponent would be looking at what's working for for the romans and and start um, weaving that into their own warfare tactics
0: yeah during romano britain um there's celtic tribes certainly in the south that were that were known for their horse breeding like the iceni um up in scotland we don't know much about it but they certainly would have been but the terrain doesn't allow for it quite so much the terrain doesn't definitely doesn't allow for chariots in Scotland yeah. um, I, I think you know mounted soldiery seems to be um, more on the larger field than a little bit later kind of early medieval period so you're talking more kind of Viking age stuff there Yeah. Um, okay. and of course you've Norsemen bringing their, their kind of smaller horses over in the in the ships as well but horses were definitely an, an integral part um, so and there would have been saddles made I have no doubt
1: yeah <clears throat> excuse me so the other thing that I always found interesting, like I, you can't re- research leatherwork without um, going into tooling. Now, as far as tooling and your the Pictish culture and and things like that, would it have just been like a, a family? Would you been able to recognize? Uh, tribes or or what have you by by what they had tooled on a bag or on a sporn or something like that or would would it have just been more generalized than that like how specific would that tooling have been
0: so none of the leather artifacts we have are necessarily tooled there is a shoe replica i make that is um you could call it tooled it's stamped it has stamped decoration and it's it's completely unique. It's the only find of its type in Europe during that time period. Um, so that is that is very unique in itself. Um, but then we do have um, stone carvings. There's the Saint Andrew's sarcophagus, which has, um, I think, it's King David with a kind of seax scabbard on his on his head. That is all tooled with knotwork. It's very similar to the kind of tooled sheaths we see in, um, in Ireland and Viking Dublin and and in York during the kind of Viking period there. So, I think it's more a generic style you'd see across the carved kind of tool leather work. Um, kind of knotwork is is pretty prevalent in it, yeah. um, and in size lines. So maybe not so much, but if there was specific symbols carved, it would have been Pictish symbols, which are unique in the world um, to Pictland. And there's Roman mentions of them tattooing these symbols on their faces. So. I have no doubt that they would have been decorating leather with it as well. They carved bone with it, they carved stones with it, and they marked their skin with it. So they probably tooled leather with them too. Yeah,
1: and I imagine the softer skins just would would be um, more difficult um, to to leave a mark on. I mean, maybe they that that would make sense. That wouldn't been as prevalent. Uh
0: you think that but I can tool deer skin if we tan it in the correct way and get enough um, enough body to it it is possible to tool deer skin hmm. and they would have had some kind of calf skin as well so I don't think we'd see as much tool leather as we think but they've certainly tooled calf and deer skin during yeah. that period
1: that's awesome and uh, I imagine um, the antler um, would have played a big part in um, tool making
0: yeah, so I, I mostly make my tools from antler. It, it works so well with the leather, and without it being you know uh, iron-based, it doesn't stain or anything. Um, but we do have um, uh, what's thought to be a leather worker's toolbox found on Orkney from kind of around um, 7th to 10th century, and within were found uh, a bunch of tool handles, but they must have had uh, iron or steel uh, parts to them that have all rusted away. So we've only got the handles and some kind of stamps left, but um, I certainly think a mix between forging ones and just making an antler, because it's it's readily available and it's very easy to shape and mold leather.
1: Yeah, the, you know, um, when I see, uh, like on your videos, you're using... Um, antler i'm thinking oh, i need to i need to do that <laughs> you know it's like it's one of those trades where it's like you could look at something that's uh, ancient or an old technique and it's perfectly viable and ex- um, acceptable to use today
0: i think we're too used to buying tools and accepting that's the tool and that's what it does not many people kind of alter their tools so much anymore but when you have to start from scratch and you have to make your tools, you make them to fit your hand, you make them to do that exact technique you want it to do. So now, even if I buy modern tools or I buy other tools, I start modifying them straight away and make them work for me. Um, it, it always functions better.
1: Yeah, brilliant. I love that. Yeah, it's, um, it is. it is a – I think that it's forgotten that, you know, it. Um, A tradesperson would have just done that intuitively um and now yeah we do get very much um you know this is my take on a head knife and you know when you come across someone who's been doing it for a very very long time and you're like i've never seen that before and they're like well it started out looking just like yours i just ground ground it to a point where i'm you know, I have one 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 side of a head knife flatter than another because I flip it over for certain techniques, and then I flip it back to do other things. You know, it's not just necessarily a symmetrical shape any longer.
0: Yeah, and yeah. I must say I've had several several head knives forged and sent to me, um, and I've sent them. I've sent most of them back with like long lists of notes saying this is this is what I'd want to see altered, and this is what needs to be changed, and this is what will make a really effective head knife. Yeah, um, and that, and that's purely that's purely off just my opinion and my experience leather warfare in the next village might have a completely different idea
1: yeah it's true and and really i think you know the head knife um you know such an iconic uh tool but you go into modern uh leather manufacturing facilities and you can struggle to find one because there's so many um utility knives creeping in where it's disposable blade and just um you know, and obviously things being cut um, on uh, on cutting machines like CNC-driven uh, machines so that uh, a cutter, which was a trade in itself, a subsector of the of the leather trade, um, and, his, and his knives are, are going by the wayside.
0: It is a shame because it, it's just the way that um, modern society is going. I, I had a friend buy a clicker press recently, Purely to cut circles, and said he'd more than happy, uh, you know, cut circles for me if I wanted to kind of send a workout. And I said, Well, I can cut a circle in under 30 seconds with a head knife. It probably takes you longer to set it up in a clicker type.
1: It's true. <laughs>
0: so, <laughs> so, you know, so a lot of the times where you're trying to buy these jigs and tools to make your life easier, you know, if you just practice in with the one knife, and, and I can take my head knife anywhere and cut circles anywhere.
1: Um, yeah.
0: So, so certainly some things you shouldn't always look for the easier tool just train with the one you've got, and you'll be proficient with it
1: it's true and i freely freely admit uh i couldn't hide the fact that i'm not skilled as i'd like to be with with a head knife and um when you watch someone who's just taken the time to it's just an extension of their hand and they're just work with it so beautifully and you think, oh, that's what, that's what that 10,000 hours uh, is about, (laughs) you know, you know, and just keeping, you know, tools in good shape, you know, proper edge on things. And yeah, it's, it's, uh, Mm -hmm. it's beautiful to watch. So for you, as you progress, like what's, do you, do you set because you know because you do so much historical work my question is what when you look forward you know in progression as as a leather worker what what is do you set goals for yourself um you know to to progress or or different areas of the industry you want to branch out into how does that look
0: so um yeah, the way I kind of work things is is purely from a geek basis. I'm a complete history geek, and it's really just artifacts that, that take my fancy. So, as long as I've been doing this, I, I really see leatherwork as that. I'm, I'm still just at the beginning of my journey. This is, I feel like this has all just got me to this point where I'm really in the right position I want to be to start making the things I want to make in the way that I can make them. And so now that I've been kind of going through. Pictish artifacts through Scotland, which we have so few. I've kind of made most of them that I'd like to make, so I'm now starting to move outside of my usual time period and research focus, and um, I've recently been doing Jacobite spawns from the 18th century, purely because I've been looking at them in the museums, and I've never seen any replicas that look like the ones in the museums, so um, I've been on a big thing to try and make these, and they have these beautiful rolled edges on them that are all whip-stitched in that I couldn't work out how to do until I started making them. And now I'm looking at 13th, 14th century pouches, kind of going back in time again from Europe and strictly the Netherlands is quite a lot. And they have the same rolled edge with the whip stitching. So I'm seeing a connection between 13th century and 18th century, a technique that never went out of use. So at the moment, what I want to explore is just that technique. I just want to look at artifacts in museums that have this, and I just want to make them for the pure joy of trying to make them and trying to see how they did it and how close I can get. It's kind of that measuring up against historical craftsmen. And in a way it's just trying to honor them and honor their work and and make sure that people understand how much beauty and artistry is is in the craft of a leather worker.
1: Yeah, that's beautiful. I'm glad it's, uh, you know, I haven't had the opportunity to talk to, to someone who's looking at it from your perspective that much, you know, but I, I had a, an uncle that was, you know, a bricklayer and he's since passed, but you know, the the progression of that trade is, is, you know, going from being a craftsman to, I know I'll get blasted for saying this probably is that, you know, that average buildings they're made for efficiency right they they might not even still be standing in 60 70 years and you had craftsmen building something that i mean maybe they knew at the time maybe they didn't but that you know beautiful stone arches and you know just the intricacy of 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 the stonework um if someone doesn't make a conscience a conscious effort to practice that today then it it will go and we'll just see cinder block buildings with no outstanding architectural features other than what's bolted on um you know and it it really like in leather work you think you kind of have to look at the techniques used and 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 it probably does take you on a journey of like well what materials were they using how was it tanned what tools did they use and for what purpose were they doing it for so it's kind of a all-encompassing very it's, it's not something you can just lightly take on
0: yeah you kind of just dip your toe in the water when you start leatherworking and you're just focusing on kind of producing things with the materials that are available and it really takes that looking into the whole context of what you're doing and, and i think that's why the history draws me in but i don't think it has to be in a historical context either i think it can be in anything and there's so many varied parts of the trade, like with yourself being a saddler. Well, I've, I've never made a saddle or even looked at making a saddle. I wouldn't know where to start. Um, so even if I wanted to dip into saddlery, I just know there's a, there's a whole extra five years of research and training that I'd have to do just to go down that rabbit hole. Um, so we, we need all these little facets of, of the craft being kept alive. Absolutely.
1: Oh yeah, for sure. And um, I see th- from your website that you have um, apprentices or, or people that you mentor.
0: Yeah, so I've, I've wanted been wanting to kind of pass the skills on for years. Um, and it's also a way to kind of help produce a lot more as well. And because I travel around doing living history events, it's always good to have more of a team of people. And what's quite nice is in, in Here in Scotland, we've got a little bit of a kind of collective of traditional craftsmen. So um, we have um, stone carvers, uh, sword, sword makers, blacksmiths, bronze sword casters and things. And we all work together quite a lot. We're all quite close. And so whenever one of us takes on an apprentice, we'll try and get them to train with everybody else as well. So that not only do you learn one craft, but you get to have a little bit of a go at everything. And when we're running big courses, you kind of we try and get the apprentices to kind of network a bit and and, and kind of really get into the the cycle and the community of crafts as well. And then they might choose a different craft or go off on something else or choose something entirely different. But I think it's nice to kind of um, let people get absorbed in this this historical crafting and where it all comes from.
1: Yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah, wonderful. And, um, you know, after this podcast airs and, you know, someone's, say interested in in um learning more about you they they more than welcome like you're you're open to them reaching out to you through your website
0: yeah absolutely people can contact me on the website or or instagram i'm quite on there quite a lot
1: yeah um, uh, i really yeah. Pre- appreciate your instagram actually um we'll we'll tag that when this goes out but um you know you yeah, everything you do um one of the things i love is your your sharing Um, you know it's it's just not hey look what I made you're actually talking about you know techniques and where it came from and how it evolved and things like that so I really really appreciate that about you
0: well I think one thing I always try and say is I don't own the history we all have to share it and respect it and and it's all interpretation what we do as well so um, I like seeing what other people come up with on the same artifacts and how we interpret it differently as well That's only going to create more discussion and and better craft, anyway. So it's open to everybody, I think.
1: Yep, wonderful. Well, I can't thank you enough for coming on today. I really appreciate it.
0: Thanks. It's always nice just to get a a chance to chat about leather, I think.
1: Yeah, I agree. Can never have enough uh, conversation about that. (laughs) All right. Super. Thank you, Hamish. I really appreciate it.
0: Hello, my name is Hamish Lamley from Octavia Leather. I'm a historical leather worker based in Scotland. My focus is on Pictish and early medieval uh, history and producing all things of leather, be it tanning, leatherworking, coracle building, you name it. It was an absolute pleasure to be on the Saddler's Post with Christian Lowe. I had an absolute blast just chatting about leather and, and history, so thank you for having me. This has been The Saddler's Post with Christian Lowe. Thank you for listening.
1: The Saddler's Post is sponsored by Christian Lowe Leather Care. Visit ChristianLowe.ca